so I guess the point of all this, Artem, is I, I understand your support of the Communist Party, but communism has never worked in practice. So I don't I don't agree with your logic behind that. Wow, that's just mean. I don't think I've ever supported the Communist Party. Look, I was we just born in it. Tommy that can was racist. Tommy can agree. Russian people. Look, look. Logan. Look, that was racism. I just listened to this guy prattle on for 30 minutes about how great the Communist Party is, okay? I don't need any of this more of this stuff in my life, all right? Sounds like hearsay to me. I wasn't there. Technically, I was born before the wall fell. <laughs> Technically? Oh, okay. How many hours before the wall fell, exactly? Months. Oh, okay. I think Months. it fell in November or October or something like that. I was born in January of the same year. Hey, man. That's that's a great experience. You remember when... Speaking of taking down walls, can we talk about Rutgers and the giant wall they took down this week? Oh, Lord. If you must, please go ahead, Tommy. Lead in. Uh, so, I'm pretty sure that had shut Rutgers out for two years in a row. Um, and I don't have the number in front of me, but I think the two-year cumulative score was like 127 to zero. That all came to an end this Saturday. The Scarlet Knights broke that with a single field goal and a final score of 52 to three. Rutgers is no longer scoreless against Ohio State. Tore down that wall. Now, uh, if I remember... If I remember correctly, there was actually a post on Reddit showing all the touchdowns Rutgers has scored against Ohio State over the past 12 years, and I think they've scored like five over 12 years. It's like, that's, I gotta feel pretty bad against these for these guys. Well, to be fair, those five were scored over nine years because they haven't scored one in three years, so kind of <laughs> cheating. It's a little unfair. All right, and on that note, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to the Tell Meets Leather podcast. I'm Logan. Here with me today is uh, our great record keeper for Rutgers football, Tommy Keen. How's it going, Tommy? It's good. Um, I don't really like that title. I, want, I don't want that associated with my name. I just like to uh, call great achievements when I see them. <laughs> like taking down the wall and a man who needs no introduction. Since I kind of skipped over you there, Artem, what, do you have anything you want to say to introduce yourself? <laughs> no, I'm good. Let's get this rolling. All right. So I guess on that note, I will start off the podcast with you. The big game last week um, in our eyes was Texas A&M and Clemson, which I, I think was rife with its own little controversies. So maybe this is my bias. I obviously I didn't have a huge tie to the game one way or the other, but I didn't feel like the fumble into the end zone was that big of a deal. And I know I've seen a lot of people getting upset on the media and I've seen a lot of people getting upset online, not like they wouldn't find something else to get upset over. But Artem, in your opinion, how big a deal was that play call? Was it just total utter nonsense or where do you stand on it? I mean, just like in any game, if you have one play that determines, that people key in on, that determines the outcome of a game, then there's probably a lot of plays that led to that. 
I think both teams struggled in certain quarters. Texas A&M struggled in the first half. Clemson struggled in the second half to put up points while A&M was coming back. I do think there were some key plays led up to that moment, and the reason that people can on the kind of ball going out on the sideline to the side of the pylon versus out the end zone is because of how close the call was. Um, the things that were in, involved in that portion of the call of the referee tossing the bag, that was the nearest one, saying it was at the one-yard line, another referee arguing over him, saying it was out, them doing a review, saying that it stood instead of confirmed. Uh, that always riles some fans up. But I, I think aside from that, the whole mess of it, it was because AM had momentum at that point in the game, and that play kind of brought back some memories for Aggie fans of the someone era where if something like that happened, the team would just give up. Well, they certainly didn't give up, though. I mean, they fought back, and they were even just a two-point conversion or an, even an, potentially an onside kick from going tying the game, going ahead in the game. Y'all were fighting all the way. I was pretty impressed, all things considered. Does the loss really bother you that much, uh, considering what you saw out of your team on the field? So that's kind of why the pylon thing is a sore spot, is because they did see that fight from the team that they haven't seen in a long time, and regardless of the clock they didn't give up fighting so when when they're upset it's what could have happened if we did didn't get that call against us if we got it our way do we at least get a field goal that that way we're within two points our defense our momentum's all going that way so maybe we got a touchdown we could have been winning the game so i think that's why the fans are pretty upset about it and they're like that's the play that did it whereas there was two missed field goals you know interceptions that shouldn't have happened because the block was missed stuff like that well, and there were misplays on Clemson's part as well. I, To me in particular, that play call where they went for it on fourth down on the one-yard line and then fumbled it backwards four yards, that stood out to me as like an interesting uh, play call in a very tight-knit game at that point. So obviously – go ahead. I was, I was intrigued with that call because I think what they were doing is – even though they're playing Elko, Mike Elko, who's proven as a defensive coordinator, honestly, I would have done the same thing that Clemson did on that play after watching the Aggie defense the last six years with Kevin Sumlin where we didn't have the defensive tackle depth and people were running us for three, 400 yards a game sometimes, some school set records. I would have gone for it on fourth down too and just run the ball four times. But it just shows how much our defense, especially our defensive line play, has improved. I think both teams combined gave up. Uh, under 100 yards rushing or something crazy like that. Yeah, it was surprising. It was definitely a game of defenses overall. Now, I did see that obviously both teams moved down the field and Texas A&M kind of kicked themselves in the gear around the end of the game. But I would definitely say that what really stood out to me was how well the defenses were performing and kind of playing off of each other as well in another way. So that was very fun to watch in the matchup. So while we're still on the subject, Tommy, you're kind of on the other side of the fence. I know Artem's got really big ties to Texas A&M. I'm not sure that you directly cheer for Clemson, but uh, they're certainly in the ACC. You're a big uh, sponsor of having a team in the ACC in the playoff. What was your takeaway from the Texas A&M-Clemson game? Did both teams really impress you? Are you worried about their performance down the line? You know, there are a lot of games that you can watch that you can, it's painfully obvious that even though it's a close matchup, 
Um, it's not very good football, per se. Uh, you can tell that both teams don't really have a lot of talent, aren't really bought into whatever system they're trying to implement. That was not the case with this game. You watch the first, like, six drives, and every play that happened was a battle top to bottom everywhere. You could tell there was a lot of scheming going on. Um, a lot of that probably goes back to Jimbo Fisher and Dabo Sweeney and their staffs uh, having a lot of experience against one another. But you could also tell that the players were really digging in deep uh, both offensive lines were seriously outmatched, in my opinion, in this game. And yet, the defensive line didn't get pressure as consistently as I thought. Now, don't don't get me wrong, there was a lot of pressure in the backfield, a lot of quarterback hurries, a lot of tackles for losses. But at the end of the day, I think this was a great game to watch. And it honestly looked a lot to me like the Washington-Auburn game week one. And I think we have... Uh, another team in Texas A&M that we can look at is if they can continue to do against uh, the rest of their schedule what they did against Clemson, they're going to win a lot of games. They're going to be a contender in the SEC. Whether or not they can beat Alabama, I'd argue that if you came that close to beating Clemson where you could argue that the referee call going the other way, they win. I, I don't see a problem with saying they have a shot at winning the SEC West and winning the SEC this year. I, I think that was a great game to watch. And I'm the first to admit that I thought Texas A&M had a bunch of culture issues. I didn't think Jimbo Fisher was the right hire. And everything about this game seems to have proved me wrong. It is only one game, and this might be a little bit of an overreaction, but I think both teams are the real deal. Well, Artem, that's probably the scariest thing you can hear as a college football fan, hearing that other people have faith in your team. So uh, what do you, are you as optimistic as Tommy now? I mean, I know you never really had anything bad to say about Clemson, so you obviously you've got some respect there for them as a team. Walking away from this game, does this give you some faith that uh, the Aggies can potentially walk away with the SEC West uh, championship? Yes and no. There's two concerns at this point. And one of them is where there were two concerns. There's one concern left, I think. The biggest concern that I think A&M fans had thought of or had expressed was the offensive line play. The second biggest concern was the linebacker depth. And unfortunately, we had lost a starting linebacker with a torn ACL for the season. So I think we have three scholarship linebackers left. So depending on how that goes, I think uh, the flow of our games will go. It's, it is good to hear uh, what Tommy's saying, just you know, from a less biased perspective. I do think, however, that this game is going to be a little different, this coming game against ULM. People think it's a trap game. I actually think the trap game will be post the Alabama game. Whether we win or lose, it'll be interesting. That will be truly the indicator of whether the culture has changed. Does the team play as hard after beating or losing and getting a second loss against Alabama? So I, th I think we'll find out a lot more about this team in week five against Arkansas than we will this coming week. All right, fair enough. All right, Tommy. Well, moving on to your topic, 
I guess what was interesting to me about last week was you were the only person who picked Arizona State to beat Michigan State out of all of us. Uh, I think you were the only one that wanted to touch that game. And you were surprisingly enthusiastic about it. I was actually kind of shocked. I mean, I was giving you the credit of like, okay, yeah, he likes the idea of this team. But you like were really behind them. And I think considering all the flack that Herm Edwards was get stepping into this, getting stepping into this program over the offseason, no one was really expecting this out of Arizona State. So as someone you know, who kind of got behind them before the firm for Herm meme became a thing, uh, what were your thoughts? Like, what drew you to that team uh, before the game? You know, to be perfectly honest, I picked that game more for the sheer fact that Arizona State uh, as a program has been in relatively decent shape over the past decade. Uh, they've had some great players come through. Their recruiting's been solid. Uh, they've played some great games. They've had some good seasons. Yes, they've had ups and downs. Uh, but I picked that game because I don't believe in Michigan State at all. I think they're vastly overrated in the preseason polls. I still think they're overrated. Uh, the game was pretty close, and you know Arizona State did have to kind of rally there at the end. But I, I don't think the Big Ten really has as much staying power, and as the the programs are living off of the name of the university versus actually looking at what they have to offer, and they've got too many gaps there. That being said, watching that game really did change a lot of my mindset, and I actually did start doing some more digging into the program and Herm Edwards and everything. And I think there's a really interesting story that's developing there with Herm Edwards. Uh, my personal opinion of him as an analyst was uh, not very good. I didn't like him. I thought he was too uh, just contrarian to be contrarian. He had like one or two points he would ever make in a segment. He would just parrot those one or two points and never change anything. I think that had more to do with the network and what they wanted him to be than his personal opinions. But his interviews recently has shown that he's bringing a different mindset to college football that I think can only come from somebody who's been around a collegiate or NFL football team in as a player, as a coach, you know, around the organization, and then is able to step away for a number of years and really take an outside look at it. And it's really interesting the comparisons that are being drawn of his personality and the way he's running this team versus somebody like an Urban Meyer or a Nick Saban who rule with an iron fist and are involved in every detail of the game and are incredibly brilliant Exodus and O's guys and very process driven. I think he reminds me a lot more of Dabo Sweeney while also knowing more about the game of football because as great as Clemson has been, I don't think it's because Dabo Sweeney is a great X's and O's guy. He's a great strategy guy. I mean, that's clearly not the case when he has two of the top, you know, 10 highest paid, coordinators in the country are on his team um herm edwards on the other hand doesn't have that kind of money and is still running a program in a similar way he's just kind of picking up some of the slack 
in the X's and O's department, I think. He really is getting his players to buy in. He's talking about kind of a servant leader. You know, I am here for you, not you don't serve me. I'm here to serve you. Just give me respect. And it really showed if you watch the Michigan State game, if you're able to stay up, in the second quarter with about six minutes left, there was an interception in the end zone. And it was tipped. The guy caught the ball. The Arizona State defender caught the ball. He's six yards in the end zone. He runs between two Michigan State guys and runs out of the end zone, back 15 yards, making two cuts to get down the field. Just a dumb tactical play. You get the interception, you go down. But the amount of energy that came out of that and the amount of drive that you saw the players get out of that, it's really a motivating team. They're really flying by passion more so than by process and not making mistakes and being very you know focused on good fundamentals they're very passion get the energy out high intensity type football team which is completely viable and i think they are gonna surprise a number of teams this year i still don't think they compete in the pac-12 they might be able to beat usc but i don't think they could beat stanford or washington well i will it is an interesting story well, I will say, and yeah, something that you pointed out that I think a lot of people miss out on. People bring up Herm's program and they say, oh, he runs it like a business. He's very professional. He runs it like an NFL coach. They miss out on his charisma. Like, people are attracted. They want to be around Herm. He's a fun coach to be around, even for these young guys. Like, he's so much older than them, but he's, he's fun to be. He makes good points. He's a smart guy. He's fun to work with. And... I will say I think it's good to see that some of his work is being validated right now. It, it was a hard decision to take seriously. Arizona State was hiring this guy who hadn't played, hadn't coached football for 40-some-odd years. Last time he did, he was in the NFL. I mean, usually when people fall to college football, it's because they worked their way up from lower-grade ball or they made it to the pros and they couldn't succeed. So it seems like this guy just suddenly coming out of retirement from no man's land, from you know being a pretty successful NFL coach, uh, is a was an unusual choice, and I I think people were not sure what to make of it, especially considering as you pointed out, Arizona State has been a more stable program over the past few years. Artem, I I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Um, I don't remember. I don't think we had you on for the Pac-12 show. What did you think of Herm Edwards? coming out of the offseason in this whole situation. So I forget the name of the head coach that was there before him. Do you guys remember his name? It's like Graham, I think, right? Uh, yeah, Graham. I don't... Yeah, so he had a lot of Texas ties, and they have a lot of talent on that team. But there was a definite talent discrepancy watching that game. And there was a different mentality. You could see that Herman Edwards brought a completely different mentality to the game. And you could see it if, even if you watch the last five minutes of the game. So what happened after the interception that Tommy described is they pretty much drove downfield. And then what all college programs would do, especially the Sabins, the Ohio States, the USC's of the world, is they'd get in the red zone, they'd get a good run, and they'd score a touchdown and then let their defense come out and defend. What Herm Edwards did is he slowly had them drive the ball down the field, 
get in the red zone and get six or seven different plays out of it until they just completely ran the clock out, which is all they needed to do. They needed to run the clock out, let their kicker make one field goal, which you know some would consider this a risky decision versus you know we can just run this ball down and get a touchdown and make guaranteed points. But he trusted his guys. He ran the clock all the way down, let the kicker take an easy field goal, made it, got off the field with a victory over top 25 team. And watching those guys play, it kind of looked like a, somewhat of a Clemson A&M game from the ASU perspective. Michigan State definitely didn't come into that game with as much motivation. Um, there's definitely there's a bunch of highlights online of ASU defenders just blowing up offensive linemen. They're just coming out of their stance with so much burst. They're, he's pushing the center off. The center falls down. He goes on to the next guy for place. And I haven't seen that from my ASU in a long time. They did a lot of kind of flashy plays, a lot of flashy scoring, but they were not a big defensive team. Now we're seeing these three-star defensive linemen blowing up four or five-star Michigan State players. It was really cool to see. I think it's awesome. And I love I love seeing something out of that, especially at a program that just hasn't gotten a lot of respect the past few years. So on another note, Tommy, you're our Pac-12 guru in a sense. You're the one who stays up all night watching these games. Oddly enough, Artem doesn't because he's kind of right there, but I, I want to defer to your expertise. We talked last week about how the Pac-12 had struggles. Honestly, Arizona still looks like it's struggling based on how bad they lost uh, to Houston, but a lot of teams like Washington and UCLA came out of the gates kind of limping, so I want... I want to get your opinion now. What What is the Pac-12 looking like after week two? We've obviously, we've kind of got a dark horse contender in Arizona State. We've got Utah is undefeated. Colorado still undefeated. And clearly Stanford is the favorite, it, I guess, in everybody's mind now. I, Washington hasn't lost in conference, but what what is your stance? What are your thoughts? Just go ahead and give it to me, Tommy. Yeah, so when we talk about Pac-12, there's a couple teams that really kind of stick out right now uh, and pretty much every year. Uh, USC, Stanford, you know, Cal and UCLA haven't really been great for a while. Colorado. Um, so USC, Washington, the Arizona schools are always kind of dark horses, but they never really seem to live up to it. So you're really left with those three teams, and I think we'll learn a lot this week. Stanford beating USC last week obviously throws a wrench into everything and makes them probably the clear objective favorite at this point. Washington is definitely still a great team. Their loss to Auburn in week one, like I mentioned about comparing it to the A&M Clemson game, really good game to watch, really talented teams, well-coached teams playing hard against each other and we'll talk about usc against texas uh later on the next cast Uh, and the preview of that i think we'll get into it a little bit more but until washington stanford usc one of those three really steps up and makes a national statement which washington wasn't able to make against auburn there's still a second tier of the Power Five conference 
and as much as I hate to say it, your top two tiers are SEC, ACC, until somebody can unseat Clemson and Alabama because at the end of the day, it's it's about the championships. It's not about how tough your middle-of-the-road teams are. It's can you win the playoff? Can you get the title at the end of the day? And frankly, they are on the outside looking in. That's fair. So I guess my next question would be with that idea, the fact that they're on the outside looking in, my concern is if Stanford doesn't make it, if it's someone like Arizona State or maybe even Utah, I I was shot in the dark. It's not going to be Colorado, but if it's one of those teams, do they even stand a chance of making the playoffs, even if they go undefeated? Because you're going to have that argument against, well, Georgia's playing in the SEC. Well, wait, wait, let me stop you right there. If they're an undefeated Power 5 school, they're in the playoff. The only way an undefeated Power 5 school doesn't make the playoff is if there are five undefeated Power 5 schools. I don't think you can possibly compare a UCF, an undefeated UCF, to an undefeated Arizona State in terms of what the committee views. Now, my personal opinion is very different. I think UCF should have made it no questions asked. If you go undefeated, I think you should be in above anybody who has even one loss. But that's not the world we live in. The Power Five is the Power Five. They have the money. They have the influence. They have the TV deals. Undefeated Arizona State, that means they went through USC Washington. They're going to be in. Okay. Now, if it's a one loss, do you still view it that way. I, I mean we're look we're dealing with a lot of what ifs here. I guess I guess my point is are you concerned if it's not a big name like Stanford or Washington coming out of the Pac twelve, do do they does, do are people gonna throw them out of the playoff conversation? Well that's a hard thing to say because it really depends on what else is going. Uh, if you're comparing them to an Ohio State with a similar record, and they already have three other teams. I, I can't imagine three other teams that would kind of be more clear. I guess if you're talking a two-loss Arizona State Pac-12 champion, a two-loss Big Ten champion, and then like an undefeated Oklahoma, Clemson, Alabama, then, you know, yeah, I would be concerned about getting in over somebody with Ohio State or Michigan on their jersey with a similar resume as far as wins, losses, and conference title. But that's a pretty rare scenario, I would think. Um, maybe this season will prove me wrong. But, uh, hey, man. I, I, I mean, we've seen a lot of firsts. That's that's what this whole playoff system is about. I mean, last year we saw our first two teams out of the SEC getting in over an undefeated team. So, yeah. You know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I, I do get what you're saying. It's a little early to be playing what if ball. There's just too much in the in the air at the moment. All right. So before we finish up here, Andrew is not going to make it for this cast, but I do want to bring up a team that kind of deserves some due. It's been 31 years. That's three years before I was born since the last time Kentucky had beaten Florida. And yet last week, they finally came away with a win. I'm so happy for them. 
I was the only one that picked him, and honestly, it was just because uh, I I can't not pick them. I got to believe in the underdog. It's like when the Cubbies win in the World Series. It's like you got to cheer for them until they win that World Series. Uh, Artem, I know you were kind of a big doubter on Kentucky. What are your thoughts walking away uh, from that victory? I mean, it's a big win. It's not just, you know, by a field goal. They beat them by 11 points. And, yeah, seven of those points came from them doing a fumble return to end the game. But at the same time, the the leading rusher for Florida should be a running back, but it was their quarterback, Felipe Franks, who's, what, 6'6", 6'7", and he could only go for 44 yards on 11 carries. So they shut that running game down, and then they ran all over them with their uh, Benny Snell having – uh, 175 yards. That was a crazy game, and Kentucky was close coming into the half. They were down 10-7, but then they could, took control of it, and they didn't allow any points until fourth quarter and scored a bunch themselves. So it's a big game. I think it'll give them some confidence going into the season. I think they will make a bowl game. All right, Tommy, I'll I'll give you a chance. Do you want to talk about that win for Kentucky, and is there any other game from last week you want to give a quick <laughs> – Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully you can edit that out. Um, um, no, it's staying in now. It's too late. Every time every time somebody says, can you edit that out, it's staying in. Sorry. But anyway, Kentucky won. And are there any other games you want to talk about from last week? Um, Not really. Kentucky winning was a big deal. I felt like there was a lot of very close games or surprising not necessarily surprising, like USF beating Georgia Tech was not really surprising, but it was good for them. Uh, Eastern Carolina, what they did to North Carolina was surprising, but then again, not very surprising. And I think it just kind of speaks to, in general, uh, NCAA football as a whole is rebalancing the tiers as far as talent and which teams are going to be at a certain level each year, you really have your dominant teams starting to establish themselves like Alabama and Clemson year in and year out. But when you start looking at the middle of the power five and the bottom of the power five compared to like group of five conferences or the top of your FCS, that gap is narrowing. And in some places it's really starting to invert. North Carolina hasn't put a great team out in a while. Uh, they haven't even put a good team out in a while, yet Eastern Carolina seems to, every couple of years, really have a great one coming out. Uh, the Florida schools that are not Florida, Miami, and Florida State are making a lot of waves. They're starting to win a good bit of games. Houston's making a name for themselves. Really, the whole American Conference is really establishing itself as something to be looked at. So... As the season goes on, any more of those American Conference teams versus a P5 team, I would definitely keep an eye on that and see what happens. Uh, definitely interesting watching the landscape kind of change. I will I will say uh, I'm glad ECU beat UNC because it, it gave me a clearly identifiable target of like, oh, th- that fan base is much sadder than I am right now. So that's... That's good. I, I needed to know that there was somebody out there who was more depressed than I was on Saturday after our loss. 
But yeah, but they have basketball to look forward to, so just keep that in mind. We have women's tennis, I guess. That's televised, right? Right? Anyway, uh, it's been fun, guys, but uh, that's going to wrap us up for this week as, as far as the recap goes. If you got any questions or comments, shoot us an email at tmlpodcast at gmail.com or check us out on Twitter at tmlpodcast. Thanks as always, and everybody have a good rest of your night. Stay safe with the hurricane out there. Bye-bye, everybody.